I can't give you a surefire formula for success, but I can give you a formula for failure. Try to please everybody all the time. That was stated by Herbert Byard Swope, first recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. I'm Shannon Hayes, and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 12 of The Hearth of Sapphish Hollow, the second in my three-part series that's a celebration of negation. As I mentioned last week, I've spent a lot of years exploring the importance of no in my life, which is funny when you consider how most two-year-olds come by the gift naturally. In any event, I had to learn a lot about employing that magical word in order to step to the helm of my family's business and continue to balance it with my creative and family life. What you're about to hear is a reading based on my research and experience adapted from my book, Redefining Rich, from Ben Bella Books, copyright 2021. It's called Yes to No. It was a cold, wild winter. You were sleeping on my shoulder. I was praying that the raging storm would stay Welcome to the Hearth of Sepwich Hollow Chronicles and Lessons from a Lifetime to Family, Community, and the Land. I'm Shannon Hayes, and I operate Sepwich Hollow Farm with three generations of my family in the northern Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. I'm the chef-owner of Sepwich Cafe, a farm-to-table and neighbor-to-neighbor experience open Saturdays 9 to 2 from April through November in our tiny hamlet of West Fulton. And I'm also the author of a few books, including Radical Homemakers, The Grass-Fed Gourmet, and Redefining Rich. If your path is in any way similar to mine, maybe you have a farm, or you don't send your kids to school, or you work for yourself, you've met up with negativity, incessant claims on your time, especially if you don't go to a normal 9-to-5 job, unreasonable customer demands, doubters and critics, and lots of false opportunities. Any of these hazards can turn a profitable farm into a failure, a happy business owner into a miserable wretch, a contented, engaged parent into a monster, a happy marriage into a divorce. As an antidote to all this, as part of this celebration of negation series, I'd like to offer you a small gift, a magic charm, to help you navigate the illusory snake pit that will pop up from nowhere, sometimes daily or multiple times per day, to pull you off your charted course of a life in harmony with your values. Are you holding out your hand? Good. Here's the gift. No. Keep that word with you. Tuck it in your pocket. Put it on a chain around your neck, hide it in your shoe, or just tattoo it someplace where you're going to see it. Practice using it on your spouse, 
your kids, your customers, your folks, or anyone who threatens the quality of life you have laid out for yourself. But then, as you practice, be willing to experience an even greater benefit of the word. Learn to let it be used on you. According to time use studies, women entrepreneurs who work at home are still caught in the double bind, doing more housework and childcare than men who work at home, warns Bridget Schulte, author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. I feel the truth of that statement at a visceral level. I was an overachiever growing up, earning straight A's, going on to grad school. I had big plans for all that I was going to accomplish. When my analysis of the economy revealed that life on the fast track would merely be a treacherous journey of pits and potholes, I changed course. But my ego's need to remain excessively accomplished while pleasing others did not get the memo. I had to be competent and generous regarding all things, churning out three home-cooked meals every day, keeping an enormous garden, canning bushel upon bushel of fruits, jellies, and vegetables, saving every scrap of fabric to repurpose into something else, knitting miles and miles of yarn, carting my kids to playdates and enrichment opportunities, investing hours into my children's education, rushing to answer the phone whenever it rang, accepting every public speaking opportunity or request to teach cooking workshops, pushing myself to be laboring at the farm at the drop of a hat, buying my parents' groceries for them, being the perfect daughter every Mother's Day, bestowing handmade gifts upon every maternal figure in my life, accepting every committee, volunteer request, and board appointment that came my way, accepting every social invitation into our calendar, then returning the invite, dashing off thank you notes, and arranging my family get-togethers, and still writing books. I am all for recognizing the value of non-monetary income and community and family engagement. But that level of acceptance was just ego-driven stupidity. Bob was constantly trying to step in and help, offering to pick up tasks or encouraging me to drop things. But I couldn't see the problem for the longest time. I was putting my family on a dangerous trajectory because researchers are finding that daughters learn about leisure from their mothers. And since most mothers put themselves last and reach for the to-do list first, their example teaches their daughters to do the same, says Schulte. How was I to raise my daughters to be empowered, confident women when I had traded in the idea of having to please one boss in favor of pleasing everyone? There were other problems. My business couldn't grow. My kids weren't learning in the ways I thought they should be. Finally, one Christmas several years back, I gave myself a very important gift. I decided to learn how to say no. I started by looking for ways the word or concept was being used around me. And truthfully, I wasn't seeing much of it at all at that time. My kids' friends' mothers had over-cramped schedules. Many of them were on antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds. My parents weren't as skilled at using the word as they are now, and they would get stressed to the point of yelling at each other instead. Even Bob would put aside every priority he was working on to jump to my needs and requests, falling behind on his own work until his hair stood on end and the house reeked with his stress hormones. We were all caught in a tailspin of dangerous, resentful yeses. But then one day, I got to see a beautiful no in action. Richard, an organic vegetable farmer at the farmer's market where we used to sell, had promised to sell me a bushel of green beans one weekend. When I walked over to pick them up early in the morning, he shrugged his shoulders. Sorry, I forgot, he said. Can someone go back and get them? No, but I scheduled to can green beans this weekend. Sorry. 
can someone out at the farm bring them by at the end of the day? No. He didn't offer to have one of his workers drive back to the farm to get them. He didn't call his wife and ask her to drop everything and bring them down. It was a big sale, but rather than wreck his day, the flow of his workers or his wife's day, he swallowed his losses and told me no. But he gave me a big smile. And with a smile like that, I, I couldn't even feel angry. By contrast, one morning Bob and I forgot a special order for two pork chops. Panicked that the customer might be angry with us, I stayed to run the booth while Bob raced our car 30 miles back to the farm and got a $300 speeding ticket so that we wouldn't disappoint the customer. It was a $30 sale. Do the math on that one. To make my business work, to make my life work, I needed to learn to disappoint, create boundaries, reject and decline as clearly and beautifully as Richard. Trouble was, I didn't have it in me. When I said no, I felt like I had to justify myself. Then I got angry about justifying myself and conflict ensued. Or I suppressed the anger and relented. Seriously bad for the digestive system, by the way. That's because before I could effectively say no, I had to understand what I was saying yes to. Every important yes requires a thousand no's writes William Urey in The Power of a Positive No. No is a key word in defining your strategic focus. I had to learn to use no as a sculptor might use a chisel and hammer on a block of marble. It starts with a vision for what the marble can be. But the art cannot emerge without the sculptor shaving and chipping away and discarding massive quantities of rock. Focusing on our quality of life, every time I used the word no... I would shape my personal sculpture, chiseling it to my vision until it was rich with only the most relevant work, fertile with creativity, joyous with meaningful connections, and pleasurable with ample rest, solitude, and adventures. Yuri explains that we can do this sculpting by examining the three gifts of no, asking ourselves the following questions. What am I seeking to create by saying no? What other activity or person am I wanting to say yes to? What am I seeking to protect by saying no? What core interest of mine is at risk if I say yes or simply continue to accept the other's behavior? What am I seeking to change by saying no? What is wrong with the other's current behavior or the situation? And what would be improved if that behavior or situation changed? By identifying these gifts of no... I uncovered my yeses, and when I focused on my yeses, essentially my most deeply held interests, my anger and resentment melted away. I mentally felt myself slipping into a position where no was no longer fraught with resentment or defensiveness. It was simply a tool for coming closer to my yes. From there, my journey to the realm of effective, gracious no's was a matter of using William Urey's tried-and-true formula for what he calls a positive no. We will employ it here with an imaginary situation where I might be asked to join a tourism commission. The formula is yes. No. Yes? Let's talk about that first yes with an exclamation point. According to Yuri, that first yes is about protecting yourself and what is important to you. Is it family time? Uninterrupted time for creative work? Business cash liquidity? Business priorities? 
I might say this aloud or just articulate it to myself. In the case of the fictitious tourism commission, I would articulate that my time priorities are devoted to my business needs, to my creative work, and to my family. No. This part is obvious. This is the part of the formula where you are doing the rejecting. The essential action in asserting your no is very simple, writes Yuri. You are setting a clear limit, drawing a clean line, creating a firm boundary. Here, I should be clear and direct my no out loud, or in writing, to the requester. I might say, joining the Tourism Commission interferes with my schedule, so I cannot accept. The final part of the formula is yes, with a question mark. This final yes is an invitation to a positive outcome. Rather than simply closing the door and creating hard feelings, just because we need to say no doesn't mean the request isn't worthwhile, this final yes is about preserving the relationship. I might say to the requester, I'm so thankful there are folks in the community who are making this a priority. It means a lot to my business. It can even include an offer of something that you can say yes to. Let me know if you'd like me to help promote your activities through my email newsletter. The yes, no, yes formula has served me well in many situations. Setting boundaries with family members, defining boundaries with customers, setting limits on obligations, addressing interpersonal conflict. I've had so much success with Yuri's formula that my daughters have absorbed it into their own lexicon. As they negotiate dating life, social demands, even customer requests, I hear them quietly reciting the formula to themselves. Yes, no, yes. As kids, they used to climb into bed with me at night and rehearse their answers before delivering them, gaining confidence in their rhetoric. Yuri's formula works when we need to assert ourselves to another party. But on this path, sometimes the no we need is merely quiet resolve. So here are a few more uses for that magic charm I gave you. No, I'm not going to let myself cave into peer pressure. No, I'm not going to give into fear or bullying. No, I'm not going to chase after every career opportunity. No, I am not going to accept every claim on my time simply because I don't work conventional hours. I see that last one a lot with fellow self-employed business owners, with women who choose to stay home with young children, with new retirees, or with people who simply prefer not to have every hour of every day occupied with a career. Somehow, we worry that if our hours aren't fully occupied with stuff to do, we aren't productive members of society. Balderdash. We need to make time for idling, argues Tom Hodgkinson, author of Business for Bohemians, and we need to be pretty ruthless about it. Other people are quite happy to bust into your idle time. You have to be very strict with them. He's right. There are many predators lurking in the shadows, ready to seize upon your open-ended life. Social media wants you to believe that your constant attention will help raise brand awareness. Community organizers will ask you to volunteer. Family members might see you as a daycare or pickup service. The local historical society will want you to volunteer your professional expertise. A colleague will want to pick your brains while they strategize their next steps. Your family will want to assign you all the weekly errands since you have flexibility in your schedule. Say yes to some of it, but choose wisely or you will lose your way. There is a well-known poster which people put on their walls that says, Work hard and be nice to people, says Hodgkinson. That is terrible business advice. If you work hard and are nice to people, you will end up working 16 hours a day while people make off with your money. Better advice would be 
be lazy and be a complete bastard. And finally, there's one last important no. No, I'm not going to fear rejection or failure. If you're going to learn to dish out the no's, be ready to take them. The life-serving economy is rife with rejection and failure. Luckily, it's where some of the greatest transformational energy can be uncovered. I face rejection and failure every day. A customer complains about the croissants. Another customer tells me my lamb shares are a ripoff. Mom and dad tell me my cafe prices are wrong. Ulf gets frustrated and can't learn her math. Sersha storms off after telling me I'm not hearing her out. A reader criticizes a blog post. A farm bank account runs dry. Someone who considers themselves wiser and more experienced lectures me that my worldview is futile, naive, and hopeless. I get hate mail. Taken the wrong way, all of us could stack up to make for a hearty bowl of despair to slurp down at bedtime. But the transformational power of negative experience is pretty amazing. Every failure, criticism, embarrassment, and conflict is an opportunity for growth. It's also fodder for great conversation with Bob and the kids at cocktail hour. This doesn't mean I don't let these things get to me. Actually, I let them pierce my soul and bring tears to my eyes. I wail hang my head in sorrow, even occasionally fling myself onto my bed and pound my pillows with a hearty toddler-sized temper tantrum. Mom, Ula has grown fond of asking, is this one of your processing things where you act like everything's horrible before you figure out how to fix everything and get all happy again? That's exactly what I do. I've learned to let failures and rejection penetrate deeply. Somehow, it's purifying. Because then, when it's done... I managed to make jokes about it. And then I managed to get some sleep. And after a while, maybe it's just a night, maybe it takes longer, I find the antidote I need and it makes me stronger than before. I figure out a better way to make the croissants. I find a way to have constructive dialogue with my customer about lamb shares and then design a more effective marketing and communication strategy. I dig into the data and explain the cafe revenues and costs more clearly to mom and dad. I come up with a different way to explain Ula's math. I sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Sersha and learn a lot more about her and me. I deepen my understanding on a topic I've written about. I think of a new tactic for managing the farm cash flow. I use my adversary's arguments to hone and refine my own. I delete the hate mail and practice letting go, but remember to use it in my next funny story. And then I go for a walk, listen to the birds, watch the water flow, sip my morning coffee with Bob beside a forest stream, and give thanks for the interesting problems that plague my life. They are, after all, of my choosing. Sapwish Cafe continues to be open every Saturday from 9 to 2 until Thanksgiving, except October 21st and 29th when we plan to go on vacation. The prefix farm-to-table special for Saturday, July 8th will be lamb and white bean stew, hearth bread or gluten-free cornbread, and black bottom peanut butter pie. Our special for July 15th will be lasagna with fresh greens and hearth bread and white chocolate blackberry cheesecake. 
You can check out the weekly prefix farm to table specials on the blog at sapbush.com. Our online website, sapbushfarmstore.com, is stocked with our grass-fed and pastured meats and eggs, as well as wool bedding and yarn. Feel free to check it out. Or, better yet, if you're in the area, feel free to drop by our honor store any time of the day or night, located in the little red shed at the back of the cafe parking lot. The address is 832 West Fulton Road, West Fulton, New York. Also, if you live within driving distance, we are having a special sale on our CSA pork shares. Get $50 off quarter and half pig shares through the end of the month or until we're sold out. If you'd like to come see us for a getaway, our farm-to-table retreat on Panther Creek is taking bookings through Airbnb, and Tibbetts House will once again be available starting this fall. If you want to stay on top of cafe and farm specials, farm happenings, or follow my musings on the blog when the podcast goes silent in fall and winter, be sure to head over to the website at either sapwish.com or theradicalhomemaker.net and sign up for the newsletter. We don't do social media, so this is the only way to keep tabs on us. Plus, when you do, you can download a free workbook that pairs with my latest book, Redefining Rich, winner of a Nautilus and an Axiom Medal. If you enjoy the slower things in life, you can also join our snail mail list and get Ula's hand-drawn postcards with notices about special offers and our CSA program. You can even be entered in a drawing to win a free CSA share by emailing me at shannon at sapwish.com with your address. If you enjoyed this, please take a few minutes to leave a review. This helps other folks find my work. And please share this podcast with friends and family. This helps to get the ideas to spread. Better still, you can help make the magic happen for as little as $1 a month by hopping over to Patreon and looking up Shannon Hayes. Or if it's easier, you can also donate to support the podcast by sending a check payable to Shannon Hayes, care of Sapwish Hollow Farm, 832 West Fulton Road, West Fulton, New York, 12194. And that's a really important thing to do because all of this, the podcast, the blog, the novels and books, and the creative recharging that happens over fall and winter, are a result of the support of my patrons on Patreon. And this week, I'd like to send a shout-out to my patrons, Jessica Heller and Jerry Bowers. Thank you, folks. I could not do it without you. And in case you were wondering, this podcast was produced and edited by the sexiest man alive, my husband, Bob Hooper, and the great music we're listening to comes to us from Emory. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.